Bojo Anin. Hi, I'm Serene Fox, and this is Into the Anthropocene, the podcast where we talk to smart and interesting people tackling one of the most urgent issues of our time, our impact on the planet. We'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the land of the Mississaugas of New Credit and the traditional territories of the Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee nations. In our last episode, we talked about how the Anthropocene impacts living things on this planet, including us. Wildlife biologist Dr. Winnie Kiro shared what it was like to organize the historic burn of 105 tons of elephant tusks and rhino horn in Kenya in 2016. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Elizabeth Colbert explained the concept of the sixth extinction. Basically, this time, the asteroid is us. And poet Adam Dickinson revealed the chemicals and pollutants he found in his own body after a litany of tests. His discoveries were the inspiration behind his recent book, Anatomic. We are not discrete, impermeable membranes separated from our environment. The kinds of choices and decisions we make about the materials that we want to use, burn, utilize um, in the context of, of industry and energy, those end up entering us. In this episode, we take you into the woods and explore British Columbia's old growth forests. If you visit the exhibition Anthropocene, you'll see images and films of pristine ecosystems, lush and green. You'll also see clear cutting. For over a century, clear-cut logging has played a key role in BC's forest industry. The rainforests of Canada's Pacific Northwest coast feature incredible biodiversity and some of the oldest trees in the world. Today, we have three guests who know these woods inside out. Writer Harley Rustad introduces us to Big Lonely Doug, Canada's second largest Douglas fir tree. Big Lonely Doug is really big. It's about 20 stories tall. Um, so if you transported it and put it, planted it downtown Victoria, uh, it would dwarf uh, most of the buildings. Activist Ken Wu tells us what it's like to try to save these ancient trees. To walk among trees that are 800 years old, um, that can be as tall as downtown skyscrapers, as wide as living rooms, the fact that we still have some enclaves of these primeval forests standing is, is really its a natural wonder that, that few people realize is a part of our heritage. And Clauquiet carver Joe Martin shares what these trees mean to him. So I know when I look at all these uh, trees here now, all the old growth trees that the forest companies are cutting, I can guarantee you one thing. They didn't plant those trees. Our people stewarded them. In British Columbia's commercial timber industry, one species has dominated, the Douglas fir tree. Today there is one tree that is set to become the most well-known Douglas fir of our time. Its nickname is Big Lonely Doug. Doug can be found just outside of Port Renfrew on Vancouver Island. Our first guest knows a thing or two about Douglas fir trees. Hi, my name is Harley Rustad and I'm an editor at The Walrus Magazine and the author of Big Lonely Doug. I grew up on Salt Spring Island, uh, which is a small uh, island uh, in between Vancouver and Victoria. And growing up there, I was I was really surrounded by nature from essentially day one. I was born in, in a hospital surrounded by trees. Um, I had a couple um, very keen 
teachers who had a strong environmental focus. I remember two good examples took us to an anti-logging protest uh, for a field trip. And so our whole class went down and we were probably, you know, 13 around that age. And, and to see these massive hulking logging trucks facing off against, you know, some of my friend's parents, essentially, who wanted to protect their, um, their environment, protect their, their neighborhood, um, was quite a dramatic thing to see and, uh, for a young kid. So for those of us who haven't had the privilege of visiting BC's old growth forests, what does it look like? What does it feel like? British Columbia is, it's known for, for big. Its, it's tourism tagline is supernatural. Um, it's known for big, big ocean, big mountains, and, and big trees. And, and I think one of the more classic images is standing on the coast and looking out at the Pacific, and it's vast, and it's, it's enormous, and it, it's, it has no end. But the moment that you, you turn away from the ocean and you step into these forests, it's a completely different feeling. Um, you're immediately kind of enveloped by the trees and by the undergrowth and by the amount of life that really does teem from every single square inch of, of, of these old growth forests. And, you know, the sky isn't quite so tall anymore. Your ceiling comes right down uh, and you can't really see that far in front of you. Um, and everything kind of feels like you can just about reach out and touch it. It's really, really quite powerful sometimes. And that can sometimes really feel like you're stepping into, into a home in a, in, a, in a way. So Big Lonely Doug, what makes it so special? Before it was Big Lonely Doug, before it was uh, measured and determined to be the second largest Douglas fir in the country, it was just a really big tree um, growing on a river in a, in a lush valley uh, just outside of Port Renfrew on Vancouver Island. Undoubtedly, uh, the First Nations people had come across it at a certain point. Um, but it wasn't until January of 2011 when uh, a logging company sent in two of their crew members. Um, and it's this initial phase where the forest engineers go in. One of these forest engineers was a man named uh, Dennis Cronin, who uh, was a lifer logger had spent four decades in the timber industry up and down Vancouver Island and uh, had an entire career devoted to, to the tim BC timber industry. In January of, of 2011, he was assigned uh, this cut block uh, just outside of Port Renfrew. Cut block 7190 is, is 12 hectares of old growth forest uh, just outside of Port Renfrew on Vancouver Island. And it's, it's 12 hectares of, of pretty classic valley bottom Pacific temperate rainforest uh, that for a lot of people uh, is representative when they hear the words old growth. They think of big trees and moss and, and lots of undergrowth and very damp. And, um, and, and 7190 was, was entirely representative of that. Uh, it's the best of the best. As one activist told me, it's the cherry on the cake that they're trying to save. And it had, it had everything. Okay, let's get back to forest engineer Dennis Cronin. Why was his visit to Cut Block 7190 so different than that of the thousands of other times he had worked in the forest? 
as he was working, one, one of his tasks was to flag the forest with this brightly colored ribbon. And there's a whole spectrum of different colors that mean different things. You would flag a creek with red ribbon, or you would flag the, the perimeter of the cut block with orange ribbon. And when these engineers are done, the, you know, this brown and green forest is quite is lit up, you know, with all these different flashes of color. And, and, uh, and so as Cronin was working uh, in, in the cut block, he was walking around through the undergrowth and, and came across this tree. And there were a number of really big Douglas firs and really big cedars in that area. But as he told me, this one stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, its crown protruded from the canopy well above the other trees. And instead of walking on and letting this tree uh, succumb to its fate, he pulled out a different kind of ribbon and that ribbon was green and he wrapped it around the tree and uh, along the length of the ribbon were the words leave tree. And that was enough. That uh, was enough protection for the timber company that he worked for to, to protect it, to save it. So he had to push forward and they had to redo a cutting plan. And so the fallers came in and they took every single tree down and they honored his flagging. And in the end, uh, it was the only tree left standing. This is when the Ancient Forest Alliance enters the picture. Here's Harley. After Cut Block 7190 uh, was cut down, a young activist uh, for the Ancient Forest Alliance, uh, a photographer named T.J. Watt, uh, was out driving looking for old-growth forests to photograph. And he came across uh, an image that he uh, had never taken before. And at that point, he and, and his, one of his colleagues knew that they had stumbled upon uh, an opportunity to turn this tree into more than a tree, turn it into an icon that can be used to promote their cause, um, that can be used to uh, further what they were trying to achieve, which was, which was to save these old growth forests. That colleague was Ken Wu. You'll hear more from him later in this episode. Here's how Ken tells the story. We came across this tree actually back in 2014 um, when there was a clear cut uh, sort of down below, on the, down below the slope um, on the mountainside where we were driving and uh, a big tree standing by itself there. And, you know, we could tell it was a big tree, but it wasn't until we got right to the base of it that we realized this is a real monster. Like, this may be the biggest in the country. We measured it, um, and it turns out it's the second biggest in the country. Here's Harley again. And they gave him a name. And he was a Douglas fir, and he was lonely, so they called him Big Lonely Doug. Almost immediately, his, his story and his image, because it is, it's such an evocative image on its own, I've called it like sort of an image that doesn't need, a photograph that doesn't need a caption. Um, because there's so much that's wrapped up in that single frame. Big Lonely Doug is really big. Uh, it's about 20 stories tall. Um, so if you transported it and put it, planted it downtown Victoria, uh, it would dwarf uh, most of the buildings, um, if not all of the buildings. And it would take about six or seven people 
uh, holding hands arm in arm to get around its its trunk at the base. And within within that one tree, uh, if you cut it down and and turned it into timber, um, you could build about four 2,000 square foot houses. The Douglas fir is is such a highly prized timber on on the west coast, and it really was the tree that built Victoria and Vancouver. And the timber industry isn't the only one benefiting from the logging of old-growth forests. All of Vancouver Island is uh, is predominantly crown land. It's owned by the BC government, and the BC government leases out uh, the land to these timber companies that they can then cut on and and are forced to replant and 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 take the the timber from. And they pay a, what's called a stumpage fee, which is a a percentage of the timber that they cut back, almost like a tax, back to the BC government. Harley's book. Big Lonely Doug isn't just the story of one tree. It's the story of layers and layers of government, industry, and activism. Harley tried to tackle this story from many perspectives. Most of my uh, interviews were for the book were with uh, the Pachydat, which is a First Nation on the west coast of Vancouver Island uh, that's centered around, around Port Renfrew. They've always been working in these forests. They've always been using them. Uh, they've been logging them, they've been taking trees down, they've been using them in innumerable ways. The timber workers are looking on how can we extract as much timber as we can within the next few years. And the activists are looking at how can we save these trees within the next few years before they're gone. And what was interesting was the, the Pachydat were saying, you know, we look at this really on, on centuries, a, a century-long scale, if not longer, um, up to 400 years. And when you start looking at it through that perspective and that lens, it just changes the way that you look at these trees. You know, Big Lonely Doug, they estimate, is about a thousand years old. Um, a lot of the, the big trees that they're trying to save, a lot of the really valuable big trees that the loggers are also in turn trying to cut, are 500, 600 years old. Um, and so I, I get the the desire to want to save those those trees because they really are irreplaceable. But if also if you're a people that's been managing these forests for for millennia, you know that these trees are going to come back eventually. The problem is that how are they going to come back if we're cutting them down at such a rate and we're going to continue to cut them down and we're going to cut down the second growth when it reaches 60 or 70 years maturity we are never going to be able to see these trees again on such a scale. And how did Harley's personal perspective change as he researched and wrote this book? Being somebody from Salt Spring Island, almost everybody on the island, their hearts beat a little green. And and I was one of them. I, I absolutely was one of them. And for the longest time, definitely sided with the activists entirely and the environmentalists and and then in in researching um, the book mainly was uh, it gave me the opportunity to speak with a much wider spectrum of people and mainly the people who who work in these forests the the timber workers the loggers and you know they're just people who uh, have a job to do and they want to put food on the table for their families and they want to survive just like you and me. In the end, Big Lonely Doug is, is, a, is a hopeful image and it, it can stand for, for change. 
and that, that these trees can stand for a lot more than just pure environmentalism. They can stand for, for tourism. They can stand for, for businesses. Um, they can be so much above and beyond uh, timber, and they can be so much more uh, evocative um, and so much more valuable than just a tree in a forest. And can the actions of an individual really bring about change? Big Lonely Doug is a really good example for that because in the end its story is about one person doing one small thing that ended up creating a big icon whether that was his intention or not it was one small act that snowballed into something a lot bigger and so to to see that tree is to know that even the small things that we do even if it's just wrapping a green ribbon around a tree it can have a big impact Harley Rustad on Big Lonely Doug, both the tree and his book of the same name. If you can't make it to Vancouver Island to visit Doug in person, you can check out the augmented reality installation at the AGO. It allows you to experience this ancient tree in all its virtual glory. It's part of the Anthropocene exhibition. Our next guest is Ken Wu. You just heard Ken as part of Harley's story. Ken is co-founder, former executive director, and now board member of the Ancient Forest Alliance. Ken thinks it's possible to save these ancient forests and have a sustainable logging industry in BC. We are a nonprofit organization that's working to protect the endangered old growth forests of British Columbia and also working to ensure a sustainable second growth forest industry. I founded the Ancient Forest Alliance with my colleague TJ Watt, who's our photographer and campaigner, uh, back in 2010. And we decided to set up an organization that would have several uh, new initiatives that at the time weren't uh, very present within the environmental movement. One of them was to uh, focus a lot of our work on engaging so-called non-traditional allies. So that was to... um, build alliances with businesses that needed old growth forests there for tourism, uh, in in a lot of cases, real estate value, also outreach to unions and forestry workers, people who people often thought were um, against us, but we found lots of common ground. So when you hear the word rainforest, it may conjure up images of thick jungle deep in the Amazon. But British Columbia is home to some of the world's most amazing rainforests, and many are found on Vancouver Island. These rainforests are also old-growth forests. Old-growth forests are a natural feature in British Columbia um, in ecosystems with high precipitation in particular. Uh, So, I mean, you have old trees in all all forested ecosystem types, but where you've got a lot of rainfall, or in the inland rainforest, a lot of snowfall, um, that's where you get the truly magnificent uh, inland and coastal temperate rainforests where the trees can grow as wide as 7 meters, 20 feet plus wide, some of the biggest cedars, and grow over 300 feet tall or 95 meters plus tall in the case of some Douglas fir and Sitka spruce. To walk among trees that are 800 years old, um, that can be as tall as downtown skyscrapers, as wide as living rooms, uh, draped in moss, is something that few people realize uh, is a part of uh, Canadian landscapes. These are among the oldest and largest living organisms that have ever existed in Earth's history. The fact that we still have some enclaves of these primeval forests standing uh, is, is really it's a natural wonder that, that few people um, you know, realize uh, 
is, is a part of our heritage. The biggest best trees are now largely gone. There's about 6% was the last analysis we saw for Vancouver Island's high productivity, low elevation old growth forests. The, the classic giants have been logged about 95% of them. Um, so you might see different stats sometimes when you, you see some of the industry and government figures. What they're doing is they're including the boggy landscapes and the rugged terrain with smaller old growth trees. Um, it's sort of like saying, um, you know, there's no danger to the bluefin tuna because there's still lots of sardines. <laughs> two different, two different things here, and um, they have largely logged out the biggest and the best. But we're working to conserve and protect the last of the, the ancient giants. Ken mentioned second growth forests. Let's hear a bit more about those. How exactly does second growth differ from old growth forests? Industrial logging began in British Columbia largely about 100 years ago. And um, in, its, in the place of the 500-year-old, 1,000-year-old, 2,000-year-old giants, um, you have these regrowing tree plantations, uh, you know, anywhere from a year old to a 100-year-old plus in some places. And... Uh, these forests are structurally different than the old growth forests because people typically think, it's common, it's natural to think, well, what's the big deal? If you cut down the old growth forests and you replant the trees, as long as the trees grow back, why is there an issue? And we're trying to point out that it's not a question of whether trees grow back. It's a question of whether the ensuing second growth tree plantations replicate the original old growth forests in terms of habitat value for species, in terms of the climate and carbon storage, in terms of wildlife, um, tourism values. Um, it's really a much bigger issue. It's an ecosystem issue and not just a tree issue. Second growth forests have different species that uh, old growth forests have a whole set of unique species that can only live in old growth forests. Spotted owls, mountain caribou, um, a marble murelet, a whole range of smaller organisms. If you replace them with second growth, even 100-year-old stands, you still lose those species. Um, they're vital for First Nations cultures that evolved in these forests over millennia. Um, they, they, uh, many coastal First Nations need the old, big cedars to make their canoes for their longhouses, for the totem poles, to carve the masks. You can't do that with the second growth tree. One of the ancient Forest Alliance's goals is to work with the forest industry and think about economic impact. If not old growth forests, then what? It's important to note that virtually the entire Western world is now logging second and third growth forests, um, 100-year-old stands, not 500-year-old or 1,000-year-old stands, as is done in vast areas of British Columbia today. We're one of the very last jurisdictions that is still logging these ancient stands on a large commercial scale. And so if the argument from the BC uh, logging industry is that they have to log to the end of the unprotected old growth, um, then what's everybody else doing? It's not like there's no logging industry in the rest of the world. The forestry industry isn't going anywhere anytime soon, and it certainly provides quite a few jobs. But what does its future hold? Is there such a thing as sustainable logging? The alternative is logging second growth, but doing it at a slower rate of cut. Um, doing it with higher retention, so more selective logging rather than clear-cutting, um, and uh, ensuring that we keep the logs here in British Columbia for BC jobs instead of exporting them to China. Save the old growth for tourism, for the climate, for endangered species, for First Nations cultures, for clean water, for wild salmon. Log second growth. Do it slowly and ensure that the logs that are cut down are used for BC manufacturing to make furniture here, to make... Um, 
to, to at least turn out two by fours rather than sending out raw log exports, but we can go much higher, higher end in terms of the manufacturing. And this requires government leadership, policies, regulations, incentives. Ken Wu and the team at Ancient Forest Alliance are working every day to preserve Vancouver Island's ancient forests. They've brought international attention to sites like Cathedral Grove and Avatar Grove with branding, tourism, and social media campaigns. What can we do to help protect Vancouver Island's old-growth forests? People need to speak up to the government so that we get an expansion of protected areas based on, for example, an Endangered Ecosystems Act, a law that mandates that every ecosystem based on science has to have a minimum protection target. Um, to expand our protected areas, um, to hold the provinces accountable to uh, Pierre Trudeau's 17% protection target that he announced in 2015, but uh, seems like none of the province have, provinces have in, endorsed it, so we're still down at 10.5% protection levels. Uh, and that's supposed to be by 2020. People need to write letters, speak up, uh, push for legislation, get involved in the democratic process. That ultimately the most important thing given how little time there is. So it's to save old growth forests, it's to uh, implement a, a, a climate levy, which essentially is a carbon tax where the proceeds would be plowed back into the renewable clean alternatives. These type of things can have a huge effect. Thank you, Ken Wu. To learn more about the work of the Ancient Forest Alliance and what you can do to help, visit ancientforestalliance.org. Old growth has been a term used by forestry people throughout the 20th century. Scientists began using it in the 1970s to define forests undisturbed by significant human impact. But of course, these forests weren't really undisturbed. Indigenous people can trace their history on the island for millennia. For thousands and thousands of years, First Nations have felled trees, harvested bark, and used forests in countless ways. We close this episode with carver and activist, Joe Martin. Joe Martin grew up on Mears Island, directly across from Tofino. Today, he lives in Achachis. He's a member of the Klaukwiat First Nation, part of the Nuu'chelnu peoples. His father was the late Chief Robert Martin, a canoe carver who passed his skills and knowledge on to his son. I'm going to introduce myself first in my traditional language. My traditional name is Tuta Kwisnapshit, but my English given name is uh, Joe Martin. And uh, this name that I have, it, uh, it is uh, a reflection of uh, my teachings and uh, traditional teachings of my responsibility to teach the laws of the land. The forest, uh, it's, uh, it is our church. That's where we learned everything, and that was our, our connectedness to, uh, to nature and the supernatural, if you will. Uh, that was where people you know, were surrounded by the forest. They learned a lot from it, learned everything that they, they know and knew here from, from the land. So the old growth forest is a very important uh, place. Uh, you know, I carved a canoe there uh, a while back, and uh, we counted those rings. But anyways, it was uh, figured out that 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 seedling fell from a tree. I think it was like ten years after King Henry VIII died. 
and it, it grew into a great big cedar tree. For Joe, the idea of stewardship is key. His people have used old-growth forests in many different ways, but always with respect. So I know when I look at all these uh, trees here now, all the old-growth trees that the forest companies are cutting, I can guarantee you one thing. They didn't plant those trees. Our people stewarded them. They stewarded all the land here. But respecting all creatures here, all nature, we're not allowed to cut trees down uh, during the spring or summer months because if there's a little bird nested way up there, you don't see it. The things that were, people were not allowed to do was to cut a tree down where there's a wolf den or a bear den. And, and so you had to go to visit that tree several times. That's our respect that we pay to, to those creatures that we learn from. And those were uh, very important things as, you know, the teachings of the laws of the land. And that's hence the name of our people, New Channel, means people of the mountains and the ocean. And so the people were always out. They were not sitting around at home watching TV and being couch potatoes. And that's what uh, began uh, the teachings was when you were very young. When I was very young, my father did not leave me a choice to go or not. Hunting, fishing, trapping, or canoe building. He said, get ready, we're going. So, you know, many of the songs and dances that our people do have are exactly about that. It's, uh, you know, those teachings, teachings of uh, awareness. Here in Clockett Sound, when the first Europeans arrived here, uh, we were illiterate, could not read what they had, but so were they when they seen our totem poles. They had no idea what those things mean to us. So basically, what a totem pole is in our culture is, it is our constitution. And there are teachings which began as soon as our mothers conceived our lives. And those things did not end until we died. So, you know, there's... Uh, there's this whole uh, thing, you know, people were called savage and so on. And, uh, yeah, but our people were taught, very well taught. You know, and according to that, it was a very different teaching system than uh, what Europeans had, self-respect first. And then, of course, all the stuff had been disrupted by the, uh, the Indian Act, the church and the residential school, which uh, people now suffer under. Well, of course, all my brothers and sisters have been taken away to residential school, and you know, and it's costed uh, the Canadian uh, governments a lot of time, and our people, our people especially, a lot. It has costed us a lot, lots of our language, identity, and culture, and so on. But uh, you know, I'm still here, and it's not really lost. Just a lot of people have been uh, uh, delayed from learning that. As a young man, Joe ended up working in the logging industry. But the work contradicted the teachings he'd been raised with. When I was 18, I got this job logging. And, and the first payment that I received for my days of logging was $4.44 and a half cents an hour for logging. And then that was uh, back in 1971, I think. And, and so, of course, I worked for about 12 years in the forest industry, and I've seen a lot. There was uh, one place in the, that I worked, the very last logging job I had, I got fired from there, Cypress River, on a road called Cypress East 65. That was an incredible place. Oh, my God, the trees were so huge. The uh, 
the western red cedar and the Sitka spruce. Sitka spruce particularly, many of them were over 300 feet high. And then we, those were all cut down. And we could not see that for all the wood that was cut down because that wood was piled pretty high on top of that once all those trees were felled. Like you'd stay, be standing there on the ground and, and you're, look, you're looking up maybe 10, 15, 20 feet up to the top of the wood pile. And then uh, there was all these uh, uh, young salmon tribes. Wow, I saw them in the muddy water. Holy shit. And then, so, of course, there was a huge, uh, a couple of huge logs that I left on the other side because I didn't want them to drag them through that stream, which meandered through there. And so when I left those there, uh, they fired me. I got fired. And that was like a huge weight lifted off my shoulders because I felt sick to the stomach. And you know, it's sickening to think about that stuff because what our people did here in the former days, we practiced not sustainability. It was called uh, what we call abundability so that our future generations would not have to work so hard. We left them a beautiful garden. And so, you know, in regards to that, one of the, uh, one of the incredible teachings that they did leave was that Mother Nature will provide for our needs, but not our greed. And then, so, you know, those, those are things, sir, that uh, uh, a lot of people don't get. You know, they don't get that. You know, it, this, this land was so rich in the former days. In 1984, Joe joined other Neutral Newth to protest logging plans for Mears Island. Supported by environmental groups, the Neutral News put up a blockade to stop forestry giant McMillan Bluedell from logging. Both sides took legal action. The court eventually ruled in favor of the protesters. It was the first time in British Columbian history that the province had been overruled on a land claims issue. So, you know, when we uh, decided we would blockade, then uh, there was support from all over the whole province. And the court case began, and then, of course, what began after that was the treaty negotiations because the forest companies and the government could not prove that they owned that land. We own it. You know, as you know, that uh, many of our, our ancient villages are called reserves because the Indian Act wanted us to believe that's all we have. But in fact, that's not true. And to each house over there all had a specific uh, part of the traditional, as you call a territory, but it's not really a territory. It's what we call hahusli. It's our stewardship of that land. Our family had one. The other houses' family had one. Like, there were several families that, that had stewardship of, of tracts of land, and they took care of that so that the future generations would be benefiting from it. Joe was also part of the mass protests of the 1990s to stop logging the ancient forests in Clockwiet Sound. They were trying to protect 265,000 hectares of old-growth rainforest. At the height of the protests in 1993, 11,000 people came out to take part. This was the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. 900 people were arrested. How does Joe look back on this time? There were a lot of children that uh, were there, and, you know, it's important to have children around. Because we're responsible for them. You know, uh, the decisions we make as adults impact our children. And then, you know, especially when it's coming to uh, cutting old growth forests, that impacts all of them, every one of us. I suppose the biggest thing is that those huge clear cuts 
uh, stops being made. But they're still making huge clear cuts in other parts of Vancouver Island. Like on Nootka Island, you go back there and look over that and see what they're doing. Clear cutting is still going on, you know, even though, you know, we, we have had some changes here in Clackwood Sound. We still have uh, probably the largest intact rainforest on Vancouver Island. However, the forest companies are still targeting those places. We also spoke to Joe about life as an artist. As a carver, his work is inextricably linked to the forest. Art is one of the most important aspects of humanity the world over. I am a uh, canoe maker, and how I like to do this is I like to go in the forest and and select a tree there and follow the uh, principles that my grandfather and my father left to me and carve it right there and then take it out and take only what we need. And, and that's a, a very important uh, teaching. And, and canoe carving was very important because that was our, our means of transportation and our means of accessing resources, our means of protecting them. And that is, in fact, how a lot of the cultural songs and dances moved between communities was because people traveled and, and visited other communities. And, of course, you know, the red cedar, it was a, a very important uh, part. It is still a very important part of our culture a soft wood it's easy to carve and that's what makes it uh, you know because it lasts so long that's what makes it so valuable the forest companies love that stuff but it, it's ours and we need to continue to protect them and and so today you know there's still clear cutting going on and then people are still targeting all the best red cedars and in my opinion they are ripping off the future generations of all of us that live here all of us that live here Joe has lived his entire life amongst Vancouver Island's old-growth forests. When we clear-cut these forests, what are we losing? We're losing lots. We're losing the health of the entire ecosystems, all the creatures that are there. And us in these communities that live here, we are being ripped off by those international corporations that's controlled by the uh, stock markets in Toronto and New York and Tokyo. Not by us. It's not going in our pockets, folks. Certainly a lot of people across the land, you know, uh, uh, other from pe- people from other cultures and so on, uh, do see finally the need for, you know, us, all of us, I say all of us, to, to have uh, something left that the, the multinational corporations cannot just keep taking it. We all have to live together, don't we? What can we do to help old-growth forests survive long into the future? Well, I suppose make better choices and be informed. Respect this uh, first teaching of Indigenous peoples here and, and on the West Coast, and I imagine that's uh, pretty much for everywhere. It's the first teaching and first law that pertains to all the people in the world. Everyone has a certain measure of self-respect. And they say when you make decisions in respect, you'll find that not much will go wrong. Thank you, Joe. Your story truly is an inspiration. Ken Wu, Harley Rustad, and Joe Martin have taken us into the woods to reveal what's happening on Vancouver Island. As the logging of all growth forests continues on Vancouver Island and throughout Canada, we have to ask ourselves, and to paraphrase Joe, is Mother Nature providing for our need or our greed. Next time on Into the Anthropocene, in our final episode, we look back across the entire series. Is the Earth doomed? 
It's something many of us are asking ourselves right now in light of the recent alarm sounded by the United Nations report on climate change. Is there something we can actually do to make this a good Anthropocene? Environmentalist Ashley Wallace from the group Environmental Defense joins me. Into the Anthropocene, Our Impact on Earth was produced by the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto to go along with the exhibition Anthropocene, featuring the works of Edward Rutinsky, Jennifer Batchwal, and Nicolas de Pensier. The exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada from the end of September 2018 until early 2019. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca.